In this talk from the Bath Science Cafe, Dr. Philippe Blondel from the Department of Physics at the University of Bath talks about water and life on other planets. I'd like to introduce uh, Philippe uh, Blondel, uh, who's going to talk on the subject which is uh, on the board, uh, Rocks, Water but No Life, which is a slightly contracted version of his title, and he'll explain more. And Philippe is from the, uh, the Centre of Space, Atmospheric and Oceanic uh, Sciences at the University of Bath. Um, he has something in common with Peter O'Toole. He was in love with Venus, uh, but then had to come back down to Earth. And he's going he's to tell, tell us about his planetary uh, journey through the solar system, but mostly about water and whether, uh, whether we can expect life as a consequence. So, Philippe. Thank you. Today I'm going to uh, talk about the, uh, all the discoveries we have made in the solar system about uh, the last years. And uh, we all remember, well, for the oldest of us, we remember the first man on the moon, how magic it was to see these people walking. Others will remember Viking landing on Mars. Other people will remember uh, images from Titan from a few months ago when people landed on this planet, well, probes landed on this planet and gave us wonderful uh, images. What I'm going to try to show you today is uh, the variety of things we have discovered and that we're still discovering now about the solar system. This is uh, coming from, uh, originally from a book called Solar Systems Update. You're going to see images later on. You can order it on Amazon if you want. <laughs> uh, this book is, in fact, uh, coming from the fact that a lot of this knowledge is coming in either of two formats. Either you read it in uh, broad outlets, media, you have a few flashy images, you don't have proper explanations, and that's it. Or you go and delve into the scientific literature you have very complex articles. You need to have worked 15 years in the field to understand vaguely what it's all about, and maybe 15, 20 people in the world understand it. And what we try to do with this book is uh, I got in with my colleague John Mason, uh, who is uh, uh, the director of the South Downs Planetarium, trying to bring all the specialists to talk to non-specialists and show us what they have discovered around the solar system. Uh, in my work, I have a job as well, uh, in uh, my day job, I work at the Department of Physics, and we have created the Center for Space, Atmospheric, and Oceanic Sciences with the Department of Electrical Engineering. So all coming from different backgrounds, but trying to work together to solve these problems. And uh, basically, if we look at the solar system, it's a bit of a slanted view there because of a projector, but we're all familiar with a family picture. This is uh, just showing a very varied collection of different planets. Uh, some of them are rocky. For example, we have the first ones, Mercury, Venus, the Earth, Mars, have rocks all over them. Others are gas giants like Jupiter or Saturn. And they're all very varied in sizes, in colors, in appearance, everything. If we look further on into the solar system, we have more than this family picture of the eight planets. So we have the smallest, uh, what's called the uh, smallest siblings. The first one, uh, people started looking at it in uh, 1976, 1977, and discovered how varied it was. This is Io, and mostly it's a volcanic uh, satellite with lots of volcanoes. All these splotches there are volcanoes erupting at the surface made of sulfur, sulfur oxide and erupting all over the planet. Some of them uh, create plumes of volcanic activity that can extend for 80 kilometers further out from the planet. 
Other uh, places we have looked at are Europa. This is a, a, a standard visual image. The image of Io on the left has been tweaked a bit to enhance the contrast to see the uh, volcanoes better. But basically, that's the normal colors, red and orange. Uh, after that, Europa is looking a bit pale, but it's mostly ice, very thick ice, crisscrossed with different fractures and patterns. Another place is uh, Callisto, which has ice as well, but this ice has not been uh, uh, reworked by all the lines that we see over there on uh, Europa. There we see impact craters that come from uh, comets, from asteroids. We see also the impacts throughout the history of a planet. So we can use that to deduce how old this uh, particular satellite was and what happened on it and what it's made of as well. If we look at, uh, okay, further down, this one is going to be Ganymede. Uh, it's another satellite nearby, which is also made of ice and completely different. It has actually two sides. One of them is heavily reworked. We can see big ribbons. Uh, the diameter is around 1,500 to 2,000 kilometers, so quite big. And we can see variations in the, uh, around the poles there that correspond to impact craters. We have some big ones as well. So it's a mixture of what we see on Europa, which is all new and reworked, and what we see on Callisto, which is mostly impact craters. Another place, this is Titan. Not very exciting when you look at it. You don't understand why, why they were so excited all about it a few uh, years ago or even a few months ago. This is uh, the image that you can observe with a telescope. If you go with a very powerful telescope in your backyard, you see it and you say, well, yeah, so what? But if you look at other things, uh, just not only with your mere eyes, but for example with a telescope, with a radar on it, a radio telescope, what you can see is a whole image of a planet fair where you can see a thin haze around it, which is made from the clouds surrounding the planet. And you can see the surface of a planet as well. All these have been rendered into what people call false colors. These colors are not real. They just code the way it is. For example, blue and turquoise are going to be very low radar reflectivity. Uh, green, yellow, red are going to be higher radar reflectivities. But all this is showing different features on the surface of a planet even if it's covered by 80 kilometers of, uh, of uh, haze or clouds, we can still see through it and see exactly what happens. This is the same uh, types of radar that people use around Earth. For example, if you map volcanoes in Alaska or Siberia, in places where you always have sun for at least, well, one hour uh, a year or something, uh, so mostly you have clouds and you don't see anything from a satellite. With radar, you can go through the clouds and observe whether the volcano is erupting, how it's changing, and map everything in very much detail. We use exactly the same thing with planetary radar, and we can see Titan, Venus, and all sorts of places which are hidden by clouds most of the time, or all of the time. And uh, one of the objects that we see everywhere in the solar systems are comets, or rather cometary nuclei. This one, for example is uh, uh, from Temple 1, so it's, the full name is 9P slash Temple-1, that's the uh, astronomical nomenclature. That's uh, one of the comets uh, that people have studied in detail, so we even have a geological map there, where we can represent with different colors the type of rocks or dust or ice that we have on this comet. 
some of his dust or some of his eyesight is going to sublimate when it's going close to the sun and create the tail of a comet that we see. Uh, Temple One is where people uh, did the deep impact mission in 2005. Okay, so if we look at all these planets and we try to find out what is common to all of them, or at least how different they are. The one we know best, because we've been stuck there for the last billion years, is Earth. If we look at Earth, it's the blue planet. We, if we look at it from space, we see mostly uh, blue wavelengths, because most of it is made of water. Some of this water is very deep. Most of the oceans are going to be 4,000, 6,000 meters deep. In some places, as deep as 11 kilometers. And uh, we only have a few emerged places there. They are quite interesting because they have volcanoes. This is, for example, Mount Rainier near Seattle, where I worked for a few years. But all over the bottom of the ocean, we have lots of volcanoes as well. And we have lots of energy coming out of these volcanoes. And on this planet, we have life. This is an image showing the spiral of life coming through time. If you can see vaguely, we can see dinosaurs, we can see trees, we can see all sorts of animals. And you can see the complexity of life evolving little by little. So if we look at Earth, we have rocks, we have water, and we have life. If we look at comets, which uh, make up a large, uh, a large part of the solar system, and are supposed to start uh, from the beginnings of the solar system, we have rocks, and for most of them, we have ice as well. For example, this image there is coming from uh, Comet Temple 1, that was coming from a deep impact mission when people started orbiting this comet, taking images like these ones, and we can highlight in blue there the areas where we have most ice. This is uh, looking at different wavelengths, but basically we can see places where we have a lot of ice and then see other places, for example in blue there, where we have water ice as well. So we have rocks and we have ice. Venus is a very interesting planet. It's covered with clouds. So we have around uh, 50 to 80 kilometers of cloud. It's impossible to see through it. And if you look at it with a telescope, you don't see anything. It's even more boring than Titan. Uh, but if you look at it with a radar, what you find actually is a much more interesting planet. Venus is the size of the Earth. Uh, it started with the same materials at the beginning of the solar system and evolved in a few billion years with a runaway greenhouse effect. When we look at uh, uh, the planet Venus there, we have this image there, that's a radar image, and we can see in different colors the reflectivity of the regions. For example, there we have this region around the equator, is Aphrodite Terra, it's around uh, 10,000 kilometers long, it's uh, a few kilometers high in the middle, and in some places we have very big circular objects called coronae, like this one, where we have actually big blobs of magma. They are like super mega volcanoes rising up to the surface. In some places there in the north, we don't see them very well, but we have high reliefs as well. But everywhere where we look on this planet, which we have mapped to a better resolution than the Earth, even if it's the same size, so we know every detail on Venus to a resolution of 75 meters, whereas on Earth we still have gaps of a few kilometers in some places in quite a lot of places in the ocean already. So if we look at all this planet, we see rocks everywhere. We can see volcanoes like this one there. We can see impact craters like this one, where we have an impact crater 
from a long time ago that created volcanism. We have all these lava flows away from the, uh, uh, the impact there. If we look in more detail at the planet, people have sent probes that landed on the planet and took some pictures. It was quite difficult because, first, the planet is only made of rocks. There is no smooth place to, uh, to uh, land. Second, we have very high temperatures. We have 450 degrees over most of the planet. Sometimes it can get a bit high, uh, hotter. Pressure uh, at the surface is around 90 atmospheres. And to cross all that, to arrive to the surface, you have to cross a very corrosive atmosphere with clouds and rains of sulfuric acid. So any probe that can last there can last for a few hours at most. This picture was taken from the, uh, one of the Soviet probes, Venera, and I think the probe lasted for four hours and a half uh, before being completely corroded and disintegrated away, and that was a major engineering achievement. Some of the probes didn't even get that far. Some of them crashed into the surface, like they do sometimes. Uh, some of them landed but couldn't operate anything. One of the probes was actually going to drill through rock, and it had a small door, a trapdoor opening, and a drill coming out and drilling through the rocks. So it was quite difficult to achieve, and people were going to actually find out what the rock was made of and look at uh, the samples from the drill. So they landed, everything was fine, the door opened, they started drilling, analyzing the samples. It was going to take most of the life of a satellite, a few hours to analyze everything, and they realized it was made of titanium, which was a bit strange, until somebody pointed out that the way it was designed, the trap door was going to open, the probe was going to extend, and drill right into the door. <laughs> These things happen in uh, uh, any kind of uh, mission, and you don't have to do... You don't have to be the Americans to make mistakes like this. Uh, uh, and one of the Mars probes, sorry, uh, but uh, one of the uh, Mars probes was lost because people made a conversion error between feet and meters. Uh, it sounds stupid, but when you have very complex missions, very often it's only the simplest things that make it uh, fail. It's when, like when you have an, a very expensive old car, it's always the 50 pence uh, bit of rubber which is going to uh, break down and break down the car. Same thing with the planetary mission. There have been other missions, for example, on Mars, where the uh, parachute landed on top of a camera, and people didn't see anything at all. It happens, but you can still get uh, very interesting pictures. So, but uh, going back to Venus, we have rocks, 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 nothing else. The whole planet is made of basalt and different types of basalt. If we look at Mercury... Mercury is a planet closest to the sun. It's very close to it. Uh, it's a bit uh, smaller in size, a few thousand kilometers. This is the best image we ever got from Mercury. You can see a gap in the data there. That was coming from the uh, Mariner probe in the uh, uh, early 70s. And only 45% of the planet has been mapped. It's uh, quite uh, high detail. You can see big lines there that correspond to tectonic activity. We can see a small round marks, which are impact craters. And we don't know anything else about Mercury from the last 30 years, which is a bit of a shame when we go about the rest of the solar system. We know everything about some exoplanets in other solar systems, and we still don't know anything about our own backyard, about Mercury. We know that it has a very large core there, which is, makes up... So it's molten rock that makes most of the planet. And... We know that uh, uh, we're going to have a mission there coming in 2008. 
taking a few snapshots and going there in 2011, injecting into orbit and taking complete maps of the whole planet. This is the uh, current position of the probe at the moment, the uh, yellow dot there, that was taken last week. So we're getting there. In 2008, we're going to get our first real re uh, full-resolution images of Mercury. But already from Earth, we can study quite a few things. When we talked about these radio telescopes or radars, we can use very big radars from Earth and actually look at some of these planets when they're in the right position in the sky. And that's where people realized that on Mercury, even if it's very close to the sun, we have what looks like water ice deposits in some of the craters at the poles. This image there was taken in July 99, and you can see the South Pole there, the, uh, uh, the red part, and all these uh, splotches there are large craters, and the white part corresponds to apparently what is water ice. So you can use uh, the radar, you can look with uh, different types of polarizations, and look at uh, how the polarization is going to be changed, and decide, okay, this looks to be the signature of water. People started looking how it was possible to have water that close to the sun in a place that was supposed to be very hot. And in fact, what we found is if you look at some of the craters there, you can look at the temperature around the craters. The temperature is on the scale there. So 273 Kelvin, uh, scientists use the Kelvin as a unit for measuring temperature. 273 Kelvin is uh, zero degrees centigrade, or 32 Fahrenheit. And after that, everything in red is going to be higher than zero, above the uh, melting point of water. Everything below is going to be below the freezing point of water. And what you realize is that, in fact, some parts of the crater are going to be just at freezing point. So if we have ice from a long time ago, it's going to stay there because of the way the planet is rotating and the way it's facing the sun. Some parts are going to be always in the shadows. So they're going to keep the ice they had at the beginning or keep the ice they received from bombardment by comets, for example. And that's similar to what we have found on the moon, where people think they have found ice deposits on the moon. In this book, uh, we're quite lucky to have uh, one of the uh, uh, astronauts from Apollo 17, Harrison Schmidt. You can see him doing some field work just on the left there. And actually, he was examining some of the samples he brought back from the Apollo missions. These samples uh, and there are hundreds of kilograms of rocks, and they are still being analyzed because there is so much data to squeeze out of them to understand how the moon was formed and how it's going to work. And uh, one thing that uh, people have realized is that there is water ice at the south pole of the moon as well. This was discovered, well, it's old hat now, that was uh, 95, 96 with the Clementine mission, where we had the radar on a small probe orbiting the moon and looking, same thing, at the polarization ratios and finding these blue things there highlight the places where we people think there is water on the moon. Water ice, but this is very important, for example, for planetary exploration, because if we have water ice, we can actually use that to have a base on the moon and uh, live there. You don't have to bring all your bottled cans from Earth. You can actually live on the land. And it has implications for the history of the moon as well. And it has implications, for example, for other things, like what could happen if you have a lubricant, like water, flowing all around, mixing all these chemicals together. This question is still being debated, like the uh, uh, amount or the existence of water on Mercury. 
if you give a scientist a chance, there will always be someone to argue with the other. But uh, basically, there we have the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is planned for launch in 2008, which is going to give us some actual data and actually go there and measure the amount of ice, and whether it's water ice or another type of ice on the planet. Mars, Mars is even more interesting. We have rocks, lots of rocks, and water. Uh, this image there is taken from one of the landers on the surface of the planet. There have been quite a few landers uh, since Viking, Viking 1 and Viking 2 back in 76. And uh, what they have given us is pictures of these landscapes. And you can see it varying with season. In some cases, you can see frozen water depositing there as frost, like uh, we had last week. So just on Mars, depositing there. We have more interesting data about the climate on Mars because these pictures can also tell us about weather systems, about clouds. Uh, with the uh, rovers from Mars, the small uh, jeeps that they have roving around the planet, we can see dust devils in some places. So just real winds carrying the dust around. We can see more about the clouds. Sometimes uh, these cameras have to look back up toward the Earth or look toward uh, stars to calibrate some things. And then you can have images from the clouds as well. Some of the experiments on uh, the Mars landers were not planned. I told you about one of the Mars missions, one of the early ones, where people were looking at the descent and where it was very nice. It was the first images they were going to get from this crater. The probe was just landing. Touchdown, cloud of dust. They started doing a panoramic around and then blackout, complete blackout, nothing. So they started checking everything of the whole system camera was working fine, calibration image, yes, it was coming in front of the camera, but they couldn't see anything, it was a complete blackout. And then someone realized that by doing simulations, the parachute that they dropped a few tens of meters before landing on the ground actually landed, because of the wind, right on the camera and hid everything from sight. There have been, yes, indeed, it's a bit uh, sad, but it happens. You don't always control everything. Uh, there have been, uh, I think it was Viking 1, where they had seismometers to look at the amount of earthquakes on Mars. Uh, people had done that uh, on the moon to look at moonquakes, earthquakes on the moon. Uh, they had done some experiments trying to, uh, because with the earthquakes you can see how the uh, acoustic waves are propagating through a planet. And you can have evidence about what's happening inside the planet, in the core, or in all sorts of places where you cannot go usually. So on the moon, they actually had some moonquakes where they could understand what was happening. If I remember well, they set up their own moonquakes by using a small mortar and firing some rounds and just creating their own earthquakes on the moon. Very small ones, but enough to understand how the moon was made up at depth. On Mars, they had the same thing. They had seismometers. It was a very clever thing, deploying from arms, from a probe, being dropped on the ground and measuring things. So they deployed them. One of them wasn't active at all, and the other one was vibrating like hell, and you had mass quakes all over the place. It was really vibrating and everything, so it looked, okay, maybe it's just from the, uh, the lander settling in, all the probes and everything, uh, the cameras moving, so they waited a bit, and they still had mass quakes. So when they did the first panoramic, they found out that the one they thought was inactive was on the ground, was working fine, and there were no mass quakes. The other seismometer was still up in the arm, dangling in the air like that and moving around with the wind. 
And it was very good because the climatologist had never uh, got the chance to get proper uh, instruments in this mission. And there they had something for free <laughs> that gave us the data for, I think, uh, 10 years or more about the winds on Mars. And people actually used them to create simulations of, uh, of uh, the wind on Mars and looking at weather forecasting around the place where Viking landers had landed. And people have used this kind of uh, instruments, uh, ad hoc instruments, to just find out more about the planet. And now we're at the stage where we can even do climate models for Mars. Sorry, uh, I'm going a bit too fast there. Uh, okay, the other things that uh, we have found on Mars, we have water everywhere. So not only there, but if you look at the poles there, we have real poles with ice caps. They're not shrinking as much as they do on Earth. They're still there. We have clouds uh, with ice or water in the clouds. So we have proper weather systems. The ice caps are smaller in summer, bigger in winter. And in some places, we have been able to do maps, for example, looking at neutron ratios, to find the uh, presence of water in the subsurface. Doing that, people have done maps like this, where we can see the amount of water. So in blue, it's around uh, 10 to 20%. And everything in purple is going to be very high amounts of water somewhere in the subsurface. So we know there is liquid water there. We just don't know how deep it is. It might be 2 meters, or it might be 200 meters. How deep it is is going to be important for Mars missions, for the possibility of sending people to live on Mars, and just to understand the history of a planet, or to look at what ha could have happened on the planet in the past, or even right now. So this amount of water is something that is really proven now we, uh, without problem for uh, the whole planet. We know how much water we have. We had the uh, two latest Mars rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, that gave us very detailed pictures of, uh, of uh, rocks on the planet. One of them is a rock like this one. You can see the scale bar there of two centimeters. This is exactly like the sedimentary rocks, layered rocks that you find near a river or bed stream. So you have different layers of uh, sediments there that have been brooked one on top of the other by some liquid flow. Whether this were, uh, flow was water or something else is still being debated. There has been enough liquid, liquid something, to bring all the sediments around and layer them like this. In some places, we have these small uh, marbles called blueberries, which are very similar to other things like that on Earth, which apparently were brooked about by uh, uh, chemical processes to do with a liquid like water. And after that, if we look at some of the latest images we have, we have a lot of satellites in orbit around Mars now. This is an image from uh, a crater, so we can see the floor of a crater there. That's uh, a big impact crater from a long time ago in the uh, history of the Mars and the solar system, so a few billion years ago. There is a smaller crater there, not that big, but mostly we have a rim of a crater. It's looking like a meteor crater in Arizona, or like the floor of a volcano, so it's very steep. And we have gullies there that come from the erosion, from sediments just washing down. And in this place there, people have taken an image in 2001, and when they came back later on, in 2005, they found some uh, small changes here and there that corresponds to a flow of something which is apparently water, or that they explain as water. And there are other images like this where people could actually find evidence of things flowing. This thing was uh, published in the scientific literature uh, on the 9th of January, so just a month ago. 
and people are starting to look at images from all over the planet to see the evidence we have of liquid water or liquid something flowing on the planet. Uh, people have uh, used that and all sorts of data to look at climate change on Mars. Uh, we talk a lot about the climate change on Earth, and we try to understand how it's, going, uh, how it's working. We try to understand the conditions that uh, started, uh, if we are going to end up with a runaway greenhouse effect like Venus. Uh, Venus is quite easy to uh, study in terms of climate, because well, it's, uh, it's mostly rocks and atmosphere. Mars is more complex, because we have active volcanoes, but we also have, apparently, water at some point on the surface. And people have looked at climate change on Mars, whether we had liquid oceans at some point on the planet. And this image there, you can see the dates changing between 1999 and 2001. And if you look very closely, you can see some things changing in each of these places. There are frozen CO2 pits at different places on the planet. And so it's a carbon dioxide. And you can see how they're actually evolving with uh, the warming up of a planet and with the different uh, seasons. People can use that and could use uh, uh, fossil marks of uh, uh, these places. So when you have a big depression, you can find out how big it was, like the streams of a lake. And you can see whether it has dried down or is expanding. And you can use that all over the planet to look at climate change on the scale of a whole planet. Some people at the University of Oxford have tried to do that, and they have a Mars Global Circulation Model, uh, which seems to work quite well, so they're able to predict what kind of weather we're going to get on Mars next week, next month, or at the end of the year. It's working exactly like the global circulation models we have with weather forecasting on Earth. Uh, on Earth, we have uh, uh, the Met Office in the UK was uh, instrumental in creating these big global circulation models where you use supercomputers, and you can try to predict what's going to happen on a global scale on the whole planet. So whether it's going to be colder, warmer, at the scale of a planet or at the scale of a region, you can use that to uh, see when the monsoon is going to start, for example, how long it's going to be. And people have started doing that, working with uh, images from Mars, trying to understand how the weather on Mars is going to be and how it was a few billion years or a few million years ago. Okay, going uh, a bit further... Europa is uh, quite famous at the moment. That's a satellite of Jupiter. We have the images there where we have tweaked the colors a bit to show a bit more of a fracturing on the surface. We have very big fractures there that go for thousands of kilometers. We have this place there where we have uh, something quite fresh, which uh, is apparently coming from uh, an impact that fractured the ice. And we have some radial uh, fractures there. And everywhere we look around the uh, satellite, we see something like that. We have different types of colors of ice, from uh, uh, white to orange. And some people think that's going to be due to the amount of chemical activity in the ice of the chemicals that are there. If uh, we look at the planet, what we know from its orbit, from the way it's orbiting Jupiter, from the way it's interacting with the other satellites, we can see that it's got metallic core, a rocky interior, but most of that is going to be a water layer, and it's going to be liquid water. Maybe a bit salty, but it's going to be liquid water. And then we have a, a layer of ice all around it. This ice covering uh, is uh, going to be of a variable thickness. We don't know how deep it is. There are two schools at the moment. One of them says the ice is going to be 20 kilometers thick, so it's going to be very difficult to drill down through it. The other says that it's going to be 200 meters to 2 kilometers thick at most. So we can drill through it in the same way that we drill through Antarctica 
to reach some of the freshwater lakes we have in Antarctica, like Lake Vostok. We'll talk more about Lake Vostok later. But we can use some of the techniques we have on Earth to actually drill through the surface and see what's happening below in this ocean bay. Uh, in this case, with uh, uh, Europa, we have uh, tidal heating from the tides from uh, Jupiter. And actually, we have some energy which is available there. So some of these places might be quite hot inside the liquid uh, layer. If we look at the surface, people can deduce that and can work out the exact thickness of the ice by looking at the surface. We have this close-up view of the surface there. And if we look at it in 3D, you can represent it, and you see these double fractures there. There are places where the ice expands, contracts, moves around, a bit like the ice pack in the Arctic. When you have the ice pack, or even if you have ice in a big lake, it's going to expand, contract, and create some features. And the thickness of the ice and the type of weather is going to tell you how this is going to evolve. So Europa, we have a bit of rocks, but mostly water, liquid water, a lot of it, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of cubic kilometers, and a bit of ice. If we look further, that's another discovery which is explained in my book, is that uh, people have discovered carbon dioxide ice on Ariel. Ariel is one of the satellites of Uranus, so it's quite far out in the solar system. That's what it looks like. That's one of the best images we have. You can see all sorts of fractures there. We have a few uh, impacts there from passing comets. But when people looked at that, it hasn't been studied since the first images in the late 1970s, early 80s. But looking with radio telescopes or just normal telescopes from Earth, we can already do very fascinating stuff. For example, this is looking at uh, the near-infrared spectra, uh, so looking at the heat emitted or absorbed by the planet. And what we can see is uh, these small dips there come to, from one of the hemisphere, and the other one is coming from the other side of uh, the uh, satellite. And this is a model that tells us how it should behave if we had CO2 ice, carbon dioxide ice. And you can see that one of the hemispheres there is very close to the model in terms of shape, so it's quite likely to be CO2 ice. But the other side is going to be a different color there, and we don't know exactly what it's made of. We know it's not CO2 ice, but we don't know what it's made of. So uh, the other question is, what about the other satellites? If we look at all these other planets outside Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, what are they made of? Triton is quite far away. This is the uh, best image we have. It's a satellite of Neptune. And people have found, first, we have nitrogen ice in the south. Sorry, uh, yes, and methane ice in the north. So we have different types of ice all over the planet, oh, sorry, all over the satellite, which is around 1,000, 1,500 kilometers in diameter. All this has uh, very complex features. In some places, it's very flat. There, it's quite uh, complex. We have some impacts. And if we look with some of the passing satellites, passing probes, we can image the side of a planet and look at the atmosphere. A bit like a, a space shuttle pilot or someone on the International Space Station is going to look at the side of the Earth. They're going to look at the clouds. People did that looking at Triton. What they found is this small cloud there. You can see this very gray thing just by the arrow. is going to be a cloud system. And what we found is that for the first 3 to 15, 14 kilometers above the surface, we have a very thin haze, and we don't know exactly what it's made of. It could be condensed uh, nitrogen. 
It could be organic molecules produced by the irrigation of methane. We don't know exactly, but these organic molecules could be quite interesting. And we have the atmosphere there, which could extend all the way to 800 kilometers, which is huge compared to the size of a satellite, and if you compare it to the height of the atmosphere on Earth. So all this is quite interesting. Titan was even more surprising. Uh, there was the Cassini uh, mission that uh, went uh, nearby and sent the Wigens probe by the European Space Agency to actually image the satellite and land on it. And what we found was this big radar image, so it's much more complex than what we thought. We can see the blue haze around it. It's in fact the atmosphere of Titan. And this image is, uh, you might have seen it on the BBC website, for example, a few weeks ago. It looks like Minnesota. You have flat ground with lots of lakes. But actually, this is the surface of Titan. And the radar above the satellite just got this data. And we have what are apparently methane lakes, these blue things. They are false colors. They are not the right colors. It's just a way to represent it. So in blue, we have the methane ice. Uh, sorry, methane lakes, and there, this solid ground might be more icy or methane mixed with something else. If we look at uh, the surface of a planet, this is, on the left, the image that the probe Wiggins gave us when it uh, landed. It was quite exciting because people during the whole landing could actually get images all around it as it was spinning around the telescope, uh, around the parachute, I uh, have a movie of it, of it uh, made just when it was, well, on the spot, on the fly. It's quite, uh, you get seasick after seeing it for a few minutes because it's spinning all around. But the interesting thing is you have a global view of the whole surface. And after that, when it lands there, it landed apparently on one of these rocks there. And these rocks are not really rocks. They're maybe small pebbles made of uh, methane ice. People have talked about creme brulee because apparently... When it landed, it went like that, settled, and then went through exactly. So uh, like if you uh, land a heavy saucepan on a creme brulee, you first go through the, uh, the crust, it looks all right, and then everything falls through. So that's one of the explanations for what happened to the lander by looking at how it settled. Another explanation is that it landed on one of these rocks there, landed fine, and then just slid all the way to the surface there. But this is real colors. That's exactly what the surface looks like when you're there. When you see it with human eyes, it's going to look exactly like this. A lot of fog, better than that more in winter. And you have all these pebbles there, all made of methane. Looking with radar all over the surface of a satellite, people have found small lakes like this. Apparently, this one is made from a hydrocarbon. We have other features around that we don't explain. This place, if you look at it, I have seen radar images from the Isle of Wight, and this looks to me, that always reminds me of the Isle of Wight. You could get carried away. You have bits of a solemn there. The Isle of Wight is going to start here. Southampton is going to be around there. Bournemouth around there. In fact, that's why we have to be very careful when analyzing the images, because we don't know what this is, actually. You can wave your arms a lot. We know that we have things that look like river channels, because of the dendritic way, uh, because the way they form little arms and rivers, the way they form there. We have something that looks like a large li liquid body, but we don't know exactly how liquid. We don't know exactly what it's made of. We don't know if these things are rivers, if they are something completely different. 
So we have to leave behind all preconceptions and try to approach it with a new eye. And the other thing to keep in mind is when we look at the surfaces, we should not always look at the surfaces only. These images show the influence of the weather systems. Uh, we talked about the uh, global circulation model, the global climate model for Mars, or the one for the Earth. Uh, understanding these weather systems can help us understand what's going on with our own weather system, where we have big hurricanes, where we have storms, monsoons, events like El Nino. For example, we can try to understand how they work by looking at simpler cases or much bigger cases on other planets. For example, there, this is an image taken by Venus Express as it arrived in orbit around Venus in uh, summer 2006. And this is uh, an, uh, a UV image uh, looking at the weather systems on the planet there. I'm trying to uh, run that again. Uh, okay, but uh, there where we have a big storm there and we have different types of uh, weather there. There on uh, uh, Jupiter, that's Galileo images, so that's quite recent as well. This probe is still working, giving us a lot of data about what's happening at Jupiter. And what we have there, we can see one of the moons, and you can see these very big storms there. We have uh, the uh, red eye, and one of the, these storms is actually going to merge with the other big storms there. These storms are tens of thousands of kilometers in diameter and thousands of kilometers in height. Forget about Hurricane Katrina these things are going to be much bigger. And we don't understand how they work at all. Uh, on Saturn, people found what they call the dragon storm because of the shape there. This storm didn't exist the last time we looked at Saturn, and it only formed in the last months. And people are trying to understand how it's evolving, where it's coming from, what created it, and how it's going to affect the weather system there. Looking at what happens with major disturbances of the climate on these systems can be quite useful. If you remember the uh, Shoemaker-Levy uh, 9 impacts, when this comet uh, impacted uh, Jupiter, people could actually find that we had big storms created there by the impact of the bits of the comets and uh, actually creating new storms that were merging and actually being absorbed by the other big storms or the big uh, conveyor belts there that carry gas clouds at uh, thousands of kilometers per hour. And uh, there on Titan, so this is another image with a slightly different color scheme, trying to emphasize the amount of clouds that people have seen on Titan. So we can actually image the whole weather on Titan and try to predict how it's going to evolve as well, or see how it was evolving back in time. So the question I always get asked is, what about life? And uh, that's a big question. Uh, often people will say, well, if there is water, there must be life, because water is a liquid that facilitates chemical reactions. If we have carbon, we're going to have life as well. So why don't we have life on other planets? Or do we have life on other planets? And uh, so we talk about this uh, a bit in my book, uh, looking at the, uh, yes, I'm trying to sell it at any cost. Uh, I'm sure you'll find that cheap copies in a few years. Uh, but uh, no, the uh, other thing is that we have to keep an open mind. Because life is not limited to water, and it's not limited to what people call CHON, Chon systems, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. You could actually build up complete life systems with a completely exotic chemistry. For example, this paper there was published in the journal Astrobiology in 2004 and explains how you could build a chemistry 
based on a silicon chemistry. And uh, even if we look back on Earth, life is always much stranger than we think. So we can think about water, but what else makes life and what makes it evolve? If we look back on Earth, so after working on Venus, uh, I went to the States and then uh, worked at the Oceanography Center here in Southampton. And a lot of the things we did was discovering hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. These systems were not known until 1977, where the first ones were found in the Galapagos. And basically, they look like this. So it's like a, a big geyser. That's where they, name, they get the name Black Smoker. They're at the bottom of the ocean, 2,000, 4,000 meters deep. It's completely dark. It's cold. The water there is around 3, 4 degrees. And these places gush out very high volumes of water laden with sulfide and manganese. This water is around 300, 350 degrees. It doesn't boil because of the pressure there. And all around it, you can see all sorts of life. So the pressure at uh, 3,000 meters down is going to be 300 atmospheres. And all this is based on chemiosynthesis. So we have tube worms there that filter out some of the bacteria. And just, they're just nice, friendly little plants getting rid of all the bacteria and thriving around mostly Pacific events. In some places, we have shrimps. Some of these shrimps are hydrothermal shrimps, so they evolved with uh, no eyes because they don't need eyes in the dark. Instead, they have infrared sensors in the back, and they know where to follow the heat to where they can find all these bacteria to eat or other, place, or other things to eat. Of course, if you have these shrimps, you have crabs, like this one, that eat but, uh, the shrimps. Some of them are quite interesting because they're all transparent, so when you are diving there with a submersible, you can actually see the crab eating the shrimp, and you can see the whole digestive process in real time. Uh, we have uh, gorgons or uh, other types of uh, fauna there. So all this is based on chemiosynthesis. It stinks to high heaven. Uh, it's uh, uh, like SO2, so it's a smell of rotten egg, like the ones you used for a joke when you're a, a child. And uh, when we do cruises there, you know when the cruise has been successful because everybody's holding the nose I think why it was very successful, because it's uh, thinking over the whole ship. The other thing is sometimes marine biologists uh, like to taste the new species they have discovered. Every dive brings new species, and apparently some of them have formed a club, and to be a, a member of a club, you have to eat a, sam a small portion of a sample. Usually you don't see them for a day or two because they are so sick afterwards, but they've done it. Uh, the other thing, so all this uh, chemiosynthetic life, is something that we have found only in the last 25 years, mostly. And even then, it's because people sometimes found it by chance. One of the hydrothermal vents in the Atlantic, south of the Azores, is called Lucky Strike. It's not a cheap ad for some favorite cigarette. It's because they just found it by chance. They were uh, trolling the ocean for something else. And instead of getting bits of volcanoes, we found all these uh, bits of tube worms and uh, other uh, hydrothermal vents. Others, uh, people were, went actually looking for them for using manganese sniffers. So they are just chemical sensors that you throw in the water, hoping to find the traces of manganese coming from these vents. But after that, how well you find these vents is going to depend on chance, how lucky you are, whether it's a lucky strike or not, and on your strategy. Uh, I had some colleagues uh, in uh, uh, France who were persuaded that hydrothermal vents only occurred where you had a lot of magma heating up the water. Therefore, you could only find it where you had active volcanoes on the seabed. 
to the only looking at active volcanoes on mid-ocean ridges and finding hydrothermal vents. Therefore, it was proving their theory. And someone tried to point very nicely to them. It was a secular argument, because if you just look in the places where you know you should find something according to your theory, okay, maybe it's going to confirm it, but it doesn't invalidate the other theories. And other people actually were smarter than that and looked everywhere and found that these vents occur in all sorts of places. Some of them are called uh, uh, gray smokers because they are at lower temperatures, maybe 100 degrees. They can occur away from mid-ocean ridges, maybe a few hundred kilometers, and they still have this life there based on chemiosynthesis. People tried to understand how it evolved, what's the link with us, uh, how uh, they evolved between vents, how they communicate between vents. Sometimes people going with a submersible from one vent to the other uh, 500 meters away have seen crabs or shrimps hitching a ride on the submersible. Uh, one of the uh, vent sites that we explored, we could actually see a shrimp. We had something called a slurp gun, which is a big vacuum cleaner, which is uh, catching one shrimp at each vent to analyze the fauna, look at the uh, DNA, and see how they're related. This shrimp actually came in. The only problem was the slurp gun was not very active, so it was getting the shrimp in, and then the shrimp was happy to swim around. That was the first one we had managed to catch, so uh, all the others had uh, swam away, so we were quite happy. And then we saw the shrimp looking into the camera and just looking at us, and we are going from vent to vent, and the shrimp was just looking at the camera, looking a bit puzzled. And after that, coming back to the uh, original vent and just hopping off there, we don't understand uh, how she did that. We don't understand how the others are related because we are never able to catch any sample. So there are lots of uh, questions we have especially because some of these vents are thousands of kilometers away from each other, and we don't know how they communicate. Some theories are also that life on Earth evolved from these vents from billions of years ago when they were the only place safe from cometary bombardment and heavy solar radiation. That's still being very hotly debated as well. And, okay, yeah. Uh, okay, so thanks for reminding me I was talking a bit too much. Uh, but uh, the other thing is that if we look at life on Earth, in Antarctica, Lake Vostok is a freshwater lake. And there, in the drilling through the ice, through kilometers of ice, people were able to find microbes that were 500 million years old, sorry, 500,000 years old, and they were able to revive them in the lab, and they were acting as if they were still completely healthy and fit. So all, even these things, if they have the right conditions, could thrive and be revived. If we look at life on the moon, uh, well, there have been lo lots of uh, books about life on the moon, like this one, explaining all sorts of sightings on the moon and UFOs flying around and everything. Uh, it was an interesting book because I, I read it when I was a student. It was part of the uh, compulsory reading we had to do because it shows you that when you focus on an image long enough, after four hours, you can see all sorts of weird things. So you have to be very careful when you analyze planetary images. But the interesting thing, apart from uh, this uh, uh, there, is that when uh, people landed in 67 with Apollo 12, you can see the astronaut there is actually recovering some of the plates from Surveyor 3. Surveyor 3 was a, an automated probe that was launched by NASA in 67, uh, arrived on the moon safely, got some data. When they got it back, they were looking at cosmic radiation, the impact on the plates, and they found they had some microbes in there. They were very excited. They rushed it in the lab and found these microbes re related to the flu from 1967. And one of the technicians had the flu and he was screwing all the place together. 
and that was his flu sample that we were able to revive in the lab as well. So this thing survived being blasted into space, surviving two years or two years and a half on the moon, coming back, and he was still alive and active. And uh, life on Mars, we haven't found anything so far. Uh, people have started talking about the face on Mars, if you remember back from uh, 1976. In fact, this is uh, just a big hill with uh, a crater at the top. And if you look at it with the right angle of the sun, it looks vaguely like a face. But uh, this one there. But when you look at it from all sorts of other angles, it doesn't look like a face anymore. It looks like this uh, shape there. It's still nice, but it's not a face. <laughs> uh, people have looked at uh, uh, Martian meteorites. For example, this one, ALH 84001, is coming from Antarctica. That's a meteorite that was sent from Mars a long time ago. And looking at it under very powerful microscopes, people found small things there that are a few micrometers and say that they were fossilized bacteria from a long time ago. This announcement was made just before the budget of NASA was discussed into Congress a few years ago. So most, uh, even the NASA scientists were very skeptical about this. Uh, this has been debated for, I think, three or four years. Uh, it's quite interesting, but no one has been able to explain how it worked. And people have been actually trying to replicate that in the lab just using rock chemistry. So this doesn't seem to be like the trace of a fossil, but we have to keep an open mind and look at all the samples there. That was another explanation of Mars, uh, love on Mars, when Mars Observer got lost just arriving on orbit around the planet. That's another possibility, but we don't have any proof at all. Uh, so the search continues. Uh, people have plans, for example, to go on Europa. This is uh, the Hydrobot. It's based on the, one of the designs people had originally for Lake Vostok in Antarctica, with a probe melting through the ice there and actually releasing small autonomous robots, like the ones the uh, autonomous underwater vehicles we use on Earth. But this one, with different types of cameras and sonars, looking at what we imagine might be below the ice in Europa. People, for example, think that we might have hydrothermal vents there, fueled by the tidal heat inside the, uh, the satellite, because it's uh, uh, squeezed by Jupiter around the different orbits. And this energy is released there, and if we had the right chemicals, maybe we could have life. Maybe. And uh, people have talked about uh, uh, other types of life. We talked about chemiosynthesis. But uh, there have been articles about uh, silicon life. Uh, people have uh, uh, used that as examples for Titan, if it had the right chemistry or the right kind of atmosphere. We have now found that Titan has the right kind of atmosphere, the right kind of chemistry. So... Silicon life could exist, but we still haven't found it. And after that, people have said it could work on Triton too. So it's possible, even if we haven't found it. And in conclusion, just before the birthday cake arrives, uh, we, uh, I just want to say we have discovered a lot of things in the solar system. So uh, we have found more and more water and ice each time. Each time we looked, we found more water, increasing we were not expecting it. But having water doesn't mean we're going to have life. And vice versa, having life doesn't mean we need water. We can find all sorts of uh, uh, interesting combinations to get life as well. So the morality of it is let's keep on exploring to make more discoveries, and maybe we'll find something else. Thank you.